Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about the war in Ukraine. Tomorrow, the war in Ukraine will enter its third year, and or even its 11th if you start counting from Putin's invasion of Crimea in 2014. But this war is also taking place in an election season. Wars often play out on the battlefield, but they sometimes end at the ballot box. And that's certainly what Vladimir Putin is hoping when he looks at the way that the conflict is unfolding. The plan in Moscow is definitely to hope that Western war fatigue allows Russia to achieve a victory in the near future. So in our podcast today, we're going to look at where the conflict has got to in the battlefield, and we'll also explore how it intersects with European and American politics. And we will draw on a big new report which ECFR has published based on an opinion poll in 12 European countries called War in Elections, How to Maintain Public Support for Ukraine. And uh, we will look at how Europeans and Ukrainians need to make the case for continued support in a much more complicated set of political circumstances as the the war becomes a battle of attrition and as the politics on both sides of the Atlantic become more complex. To help us make sense of all of these things, we have an all-star cast. Joining us from Berlin is Gustav Gressel. He is a senior policy fellow on the Wider Europe program at ECFR and has been analysing all the latest twists and turns in, in, the, uh, in the war since the very beginning um, of the conflict. And down the line from Washington, we have Jeremy Shapiro, who is research director of ECFR and director of our new US program. He's been looking very closely at all the different tribes of foreign policy on the Democrat and Republican sides and seeing how they're thinking about the the war in Ukraine. And I will try and give you some insights into the politics within the EU, drawing on this report, uh, which Ivan Krastev and I have just produced for ECFR. So Gustav, why don't we start with you? Last December, during Jeremy's failed coup attempt uh, on the the podcast, he talked to you about the state of the war at the time. Um, It'd be interesting to to go back to those questions and and maybe you can start by by telling us how you see things two years into into the the full-scale invasion, um, what has changed and what you think uh, is likely to to happen um, in the next few months and, and how you see the the conflict on the ground evolving. Thanks a lot. So, well, a lot has changed in this war. Uh, Still, some things stayed pretty much the same. And one is that it's still a war of attrition. So actually, since the failed attempt to size Kiev in a a very short offensive, uh, Russia regrouped, uh, went to the Donbass, tried to consolidate its forces and uh, exhaust uh, Ukrainian defenders, uh, exhaust the supply, uh, and put uh, sort of overwhelming pressure on them in in the hope or with the aim to make Ukrainian armed forces collapse. Um, that was then time and again prevented by delivering uh, 
other artillery systems like HIMARS that had quite an impact on the war, new ammunition, etc. The problem basically we are in now is that in the West, uh, there was a bit of a lackluster preparation for a really long war, um, the very late sort of upkick in in increasing artillery ammunition production or producing other uh, ammunition types like air defense missiles, etc., is a witness to that. And the second thing is, of course, that last summer's Ukrainian offensive, the so-called counteroffensive, was it did not yield the results that Ukraine had hoped. And I mean, in the West, some people had the impression that this would end the war. I, I thought that would be an illusion from the start. But of course, if the if the offensive had been more successful, the front line would be much shorter because it would go directly down to the Sea of Azov and cut several hundred kilometers out of that front. And that would, of course, allow Ukraine to rotate forces to relieve some of the troops that have been fighting for two years. And that's quite, uh, quite a nasty job to do. But now, of course, they can't and would give them some breathing space in that. Because uh, as as basically uh, seen last year, that by the end of, of 2023, most of Ukrainian forces will be quite exhausted, and they are. And on top of that, of course, with, with the political squabbles, we'll get into some minutes, um, ammunition, supplies, uh, are running short because we are not yet in the phase where we can su- sustain Ukraine militarily from what we produce um, and our stocks are running low. Our artillery is the most prominent example but we get you know digress that into pretty much each and every weapon system and spare parts etc and sort of this is a, a a very weak phase for ukrainians because they are kind of hung into this gap uh, and the russians try to make the most of it and press on they have of course horrific losses and they will probably not keep on pressing at this pace but they know that it's a now or never chance to to really uh, have a, a, an enemy that is uh uh, that that has supply issues so of course they they try as hard as they can so how much of an effect is the 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 lack of political will in washington already having on the um on the way that the war is being f- fought at the moment i mean if sort of artillery ammunition because it's the best documented case i think amplifies the or amplifies that um ukraine would need to defend its its 1200 kilometer front roughly 5000 rounds a day as a kind of defensive minimum now with us and eu production as we are now combined we could get them 3600 per day or more isn't because of the problems i talked previously but if you cut uh, us production from that basically we are at half of the supplies uh, and that is of course considerably short of what ukraine needs and what the daily needs in the armed forces are uh, and uh, and of course you you see that on the front uh, they have to preserve ammunition uh, they can't execute the, the the fire missions as they should and as 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 would be commanded. Um, uh, Ukraine is much more economic uh, with artillery in the first place, but still there is sort of there are limits on how how much you can scratch economic use of this kind of stuff. Um, they can't go on the offensive that's for clear, but they even have real struggle on the defense because. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of talk of drones as a substitute, but at the end, artillery is enormously lethal and you need to really destroy the other 
equipment and ruin it to to take it out of that war uh, and that's very hard by the and what's your sense of of the likelihood of there being major setbacks if we if we carry on in the way that we are at the moment um that, that of course depends on how long this uh this unfortunate situation persists because there, of course, there is production in the US and there is capability to help out. So once they would get their act together, they could could at least um, uh, improve the Ukrainian situation. But if that persists, um, we have to we have to prepare ourselves for very bad news, and we could have further setbacks and uh, in the south um, and especially in the east. So Russians they are pushing towards the Oskil River, so basically trying to revert. The gains of the Kharkiv of parts of the Kharkiv counteroffensive and the summer counteroffensive, uh, and that might be in the reach. Um, and what do you th- uh, think the consequences of the the changes in the military are in within Ukraine? Chaluzhny replacement and, um, and and that kind of um, actually. The, the the thing sort of there were a lot of rumors about Sirsky and his his role and sort of his future role. The, the the thing is he has a better wire into the presidential administration, uh, and that can be used for good or for the bad. And for the time being, I think it's used for the good. So that Avdiivka withdrawal actually is as bad as it sounds, but under current circumstances, a good thing that was resisted politically because, of course, the bad images, etc. But militarily, it was necessary because they don't have the forces and they don't have the ammo to hold of the IFCA, And then you kind of need to cut your losses and and withdraw from exposed positions. Um, uh, there, there, there's a, uh, in the second reading of the amendment to the mobilization law, which is extremely important for the Ukrainian army to replenish their people. It has been politicized. It has been pushed between parliament and uh, the presidential elections. And a, a politically well-networked uh, uh, head of the general staff could make the difference in whether it passes or not, or at least try to make a difference. And that would be a huge gain. So actually... Um, uh, yes, Solution was a very popular general. He was a general with a good and great heart. He cared for his soldiers, and he that was something that boosted morale. But at the end, uh, Sirsk is doing a good job at the day, and uh, I think uh, I, I can reason with Zelensky why he did what he did. So... Um, the big question in terms of political support, which we're, we discussed on the podcast last week from the Munich Security Conference, and which we'll carry on discussing for the next few months, is about the US and, and what's happening there. Um, so I want to go to Jeremy for that. But maybe before we go to the US, should talk a bit about the European side, which is obviously influenced by people's perspective on the US. We've just done this study um, uh, based on a poll in 12 countries called War and Elections, which looks at how to maintain European support at the level of public opinion for, for, for Ukraine. And what we find is quite a sobering picture where, on the one hand, people are more pessimistic about how this war is going to end. Only 10% of Europeans on average think that Ukraine can triumph in the conflict. Only uh, 20% think that the Russians are, are going to prevail. Most people think there'll be some sort of a a settlement. But at the same time, Europeans uh, are not really in the mood for appeasement. In fact, they are very keen to make sure that there isn't a Russian victory. They're quite scared of the prospect of of Trump's election. Most people uh, in Europe would be disappointed if Trump wins. 
And one of the reasons for that is that they think that this will uh, make it harder for, for Ukraine in the in the conflict. And we asked some really interesting questions about whether people wanted to push for a settlement, whether to carry on supporting uh, Ukraine or whether they should increase their support for Ukraine if there is a sort of Trump scenario and, and the US withdraws its support. And what we found um, uh, in that is that Europeans are not in a sort of heroic mood, only a minority, uh, 20% on average, would like to increase support to compensate for a US pullout. But 21% um, say that they'd like to keep their support unchanged. And a third of respondents want to, would like the, the EU to, to follow the US in limiting support if, uh, if there is a kind of Trump scenario. So what we sort of tried to do in the report was to think about how you deal with the politics of, of making a case at a time when people don't find the idea of a Ukrainian victory very credible, but also how you can capitalize on the fact that, that a plurality of people in, in uh, across Europe want to at least keep the existing level of support, if not increase it. And um, what we're sort of arguing in the report is that the best way to do that is to, to sort of change the language so that we make the, the case for continued support as a way of putting Ukraine in a strong position for eventually comes out of it. So rather than focusing simply on the question of territory and regaining territory to try and focus a bit more on how Europeans can defend Ukraine as an independent democratic country, which can choose its own future and which can join uh, the EU and NATO eventually, rather than being completely focused on the territory uh, which is at stake. And an important part of um, the, the, uh, the challenge is going to be talking about peace and trying to show that it's impossible if Trump makes it to the White House to envisage a real peace coming out of a, a Trump peace settlement. And I think the danger is that Putin and, and Trump end up uh, posing as the deliverers of peace and that the Ukrainians and their backers end up looking like the forever war party. And for that reason, it's, it's important to kind of lean in to define what a what a durable piece, what a sustainable piece would look like, and to to, to shape that debate. So this is some of the the findings. There's lots of interesting detail um, and quite big divisions between different countries. And one of the kind of worrying trends about European public opinion as well is that a lot of the the most um, kind of nervous uh, countries and a lot of the most negative sentiments about Ukraine come from its direct neighbours, particularly from Romania and Hungary and and even Poland when it comes to the question of refugees, uh, which which is why it's quite a sobering poll. But I don't know if, if either of you want to to comment more on on that before we move to the US. Gustav? Because we talked about artillery ammunition, uh, I, with, together with Marcus Welsh, uh, trying to figure out actually what is delivered and what not. And we had a sort of a big discussion about a delivery gap in European artillery ammunition production. Last year, we produced much more ammunition than uh, than actually was delivered to Ukraine. And we, we, we asked ourselves why, and we tried to sort of approach enterprises, but they, they actually were very secretive about whom they deliver. But the little information we got, um, which of course was not representative, that's why we, we skipped it out of the report, but the little information we got is that increasingly European countries start to stock up 
And there is this kind of war scare that people fear that if Trump is elected, um, that things will go sour very quickly. Uh, and that might have an implication for this war. If he really wins, if he sort of destroys leadership and countries think, well, I have to go on my own, they will prioritize their own armed forces. And this, uh, even if you support for Ukraine is quite impressive and uh, has caught up in actually in the last year, especially in the latter half, quite considerably, uh, that this progress actually might be destroyed just by by kind of public nervousness, skeptical public that will demand also a reprioritization because nobody trusts uh, Donald Trump and whomever he puts in place as a foreign minister. Um, and that's a real, real uh, serious danger. Jeremy, did you want to comment on the European public opinion? Yeah, I mean, sort of. Uh, I just wanted to understand what what when you're saying that you can you need to sell a durable piece that doesn't involve territory to the european public what what is that what is what is that durable piece what does it look like what is the geopolitical status of ukraine for example i think that's the the key thing i think rather than focusing on whether on the exact territorial um uh, situation on the ground to think about what Ukraine's geopolitical orientation is. And I think one of the big dangers of a Trump peace plan is that it could involve the not just the dismemberment of Ukraine, but trying to, to neutralize Ukraine and to to disarm Ukraine. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. And it's all it's important, as you both have to talk about the, the dangers of Trump. And that's, that's important. I, I, I get that. But you're saying, well, in order to deal with the dangers of Trump, we have to put forward our own plan. And, you know, the, it seems to me that the, the Biden administration somewhat quietly has been trying to push away from this territorial question for a long time. And they haven't been able to. And the reason they haven't been able to is because in the first instance, the Ukrainians will not have it and they will embarrass you if you try. And in the second, in the second instance, a lot of the allies especially Eastern European allies, are very um, nervous about it because of this idea of, of validating territorial aggression or whatever, whatever you call it. Um, and so I think it, it feels to me like you've told at least the Biden administration, probably some of the Western Europeans too, to do something that they've been trying to do for a year and can't figure out how to manage the politics. Of. So we're, our message is as much aimed at the Ukrainians as anyone else, actually. The sort of support that Ukraine has enjoyed so far is in doubt. And on the European front, what our poll shows is that if your case is we want to fight a forever war and we're going to get all of our territory back, you are eventually going to run into a brick wall of, of European public opinion. So therefore, if you want to sustain European support, you need to have a different narrative. And, uh, you know, I think some of the scenarios that people are talking about are a West German scenario or other things. None of them involve recognizing Russian sovereignty over an inch of Ukrainian territory. But it's the, the idea is to try and think about how you can give Ukraine a positive path forward as an independent country that sets its own future and that can live in in peace and has the sort of security guarantees that the government has been has been calling out for and that a lot of Ukrainian backers want to give it. But yeah, fair enough. I mean, maybe that's a good transition into the US domestic. Can I just add, add a two thing? I think I think the whole discussion is a bit premature because I mean, there's another party to the war and the Russians uh, are not 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 really not really satisfied with 20% of the country. Uh, um, they they might be inclined to do so once their effort fades and their material resources to continue or scale that what they're doing now starts to decline and we are not there 
uh, we're probably not going to be there next year. And once that happens, then I think there will be a discussion in Ukraine, how many people would you sacrifice uh, to get Donetsk City back or, or other other heavily fortified positions. Uh, but we are years away from that. Um, well, but the, I think that the point that Mark is making, and, the, and I would have emphasized in the US context too, is that if you're going to prevent Ukrainian defeat through European and American arms supplies, among other supplies, you're going to have to have a better narrative about what you can possibly achieve. That doesn't actually involve the Russians, and that doesn't even mean that you're going to get to negotiations. But it does mean that if you want to continue the pipeline, which is the thing that avoids Ukrainian defeat, you have to have a different, more realistic narrative. And I think that does sort of take us into the U.S. domestic politics, because I think what's intriguing about the sort of middle way that Mark is talking about, which is, you know, strikes me as quite sensible in, in a lot of different ways, and it's the best way to maintain the war effort, I would certainly agree. I think that's true in both Europe and the United States, is that there is no party in U.S. domestic politics representing that position right now. The, there is a sort of let's aid Ukraine all out, uh, which which is, you know, was basically the Biden administration. That's at least their line. I don't think it's what they actually say behind closed doors, but that's but that's how they're taking it. And, and they're not trying a different narrative on the American public. And then there is the let's, we don't really need to help them at all. And the Europeans should do it, represented by J.D. Vance and increasingly by Donald Trump and the Republican Party generally. And so the U.S. politics is caught, I think, in an election year between the two extremes and doesn't seem to admit the idea that, that Mark was talking about, that we could have a sort of better narrative about something that we could actually achieve and something that the public would actually support. But I think part of the thing as well, if you want to get to where Gustav's talking about, is you need to fix <laughs> the public support thing because Putin is betting on the West becoming fatigued and pulling the plug on Ukraine. And he needs to see that that's not going to happen if we're going to end up in a situation where any kind of future is possible for, for, for Ukraine. I don't think that there's any interest in having real negotiations now except for um, ratifying a total defeat of the Ukrainians, which is not something that the West should be contemplating at the moment. But that is one of the, the questions. I mean, we've seen the, the package, you know, the appropriations package finally get through the Senate, um, Jeremy, but... Um, what do you think is going to happen now with the House? And I mean, do you think this is just a chimera, or do you think that that it's possible to see it winding its way through the the American legislative process? I, I remain highly uncertain. I I guess I think overall that it will wind its way through the legislative process in part because the the leadership in the House doesn't really want to be the ones that stopping it that will stop it. And there is this weird parliamentary maneuver in the House where if you get the majority of of representatives to sign a statement, you can bring something to the floor without the leadership bringing it to the floor, which is the normal route. And that means that that you could pass this bill without the leadership's approval. And that seems like a pretty nice compromise for everybody. It's called a discharge petition. It's very rarely been used. Uh, and it, it it is difficult in an era of polarization. But I think that this is an issue in which could, it could work. And there's estimated to be something over 300 votes for this package in the U.S. House of Representatives. So if it does come to the floor, it will pass. I have to emphasize that I'm highly uncertain about that. It changes every day. And Donald Trump has a massive influence. He destroyed the, the deal that they had been working on for months about tying this to reform on the border. The Republicans ended up defecting from their own deal. And he hasn't been quite as forceful on Ukraine. He hasn't demanded exactly that people 
not vote for this, although he's hinted that he doesn't want them to. If he came out fully against it in the next week or two, it would probably die. And so, and since he's unpredictable, that's unpredictable. I think we, it isn't as much of a binary as people say. Uh, the administration has the, of course, is saying, you know, you have to pass this or the world will end. Actually, the United States has a lot of other ways of assisting Ukraine. None of them are as efficient, as as effective as, as passing this bill. But it's not as if all U.S. support would end. Um, but it would be a quite significant loss, and it would sort of demonstrate that the U.S. political system is not behind the Ukraine war. And frankly, even if the bill passes and, and we get this big tranche of money, which will last for several months, that fact will still remain. The U.S. political system is clearly not behind this bill, the U.S. public, I mean, behind this war. The U.S. public is clearly not uh, behind this war in a significant way. And that may, they may manage to finesse that this year and, you know, maybe even next year, but eventually and in not too distant future, they're not going to be able to finesse it. And that's frankly true whether Donald Trump wins or not, but of course, particularly if he does. Gustav, what do you think the best way through this is? The problem is to strike the balance because sort of the counter argument to to kind of dial down the position from from the current kind of all-inclusive package is what do we signal Putin um, that sort of the longer the pressure lasts, the more we will dial down the position in which we might even enter negotiations. So um, that there is a negotiation tactical counter thing to that. The problem also is that public expectations usually linearly extrapolates certain trends and then builds up political expectation on them. Everybody expected or a lot of people expected the Russian army to collapse and end and it hasn't. Um, now, of course, the doomsday scenarios go for the Ukrainians because they're in a weak phase. Um, but it's a phase and that's a bit of a problem. At the end, we also need to think, how can we incentivize uh, Ukraine, for example, a ceasefire? There's this talk about uh, NATO membership. Well, actually, are Europeans ready to offer that? Do we have the unity in NATO to really put that on a negotiating table? Are we sure or do we know the price Orban and Erdogan will, will call out for that? Um, if Ukraine hasn't recovered the entire territory and we don't recognize occupied territories, are we actually sure about the mechanism that ensures or really provides credible Article 5 to the remaining territories and something that is that is viable under the situation that then will occur? Uh, that would sort of just looking at us uh, before we look at the Ukrainians be a quite interesting and probably very heated debate because Europeans, of course, now a bit light and say, yeah, of course, uh, your place is the EU, your place is NATO. But on the other hand, especially if NATO's futures were even more volatile than it is now, uh, everybody depends on Article 5 and on the credibility of Article 5. Adding gray zones into that will be a tricky exercise. And I, I don't see the planning and thinking ahead how to actually manage and conceptualize this at this point. So maybe we should talk a bit about the NATO summit because that's coming up very soon. And there was a, a pretty disruptive and depressing run up to the last NATO summit in Vilnius. And this is meant to be uh, run in a different way. What, what do you think is going to be the, the situation at, at when, we, when people go to Washington? Because last time the US was um, dragging its feet on this question of NATO membership, the Ukrainians had a really big push. There was a very obvious divide within the, 
the NATO community. Jeremy, you've been talking to Americans, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, of course, events on the ground could change things dramatically between now and then. But putting that aside, the setup for the NATO summit is frighteningly like the last one. Um, the, the US and the Germans are still of the same view that they shouldn't really move forward on a NATO invitation. Other countries are pushing for it, particularly uh, the UK and the French, but others as well. And a bunch of countries are, you know, trying to kind of silent. And the Americans have been sending the message uh, very strongly to Ukraine and to some of the Eastern European backers of Ukraine that they don't want this NATO summit in Washington disrupted in the way that the Vilnius one was by this question and by the public embarrassment that that uh, almost resulted. Um, and uh, they haven't had a lot of success so far. I mean, it's early days. There's still there's still five months to go. Um, but at the moment, the Ukrainians are still bound and determined to be making a stink about this. So as far as I understand. And so uh, we are at the moment set up to have another situation like we had in Vilnius. Uh, but I would say that at least the from an American standpoint, they're quite focused on that. And what they want this summit to be is a little bit what you talked about, Mark, which is describing a sort of network of various other types of security guarantees, bilateral and, mili- and, and other types of military assistance that will create a, a stronger Ukraine in a long, on a longer term and not really talk about NATO membership for Ukraine. Gustav, one other thing that's been going on recently is it's been a, a kind of drumbeat of talk from different intelligence agencies, military leaders and other people about the th- Article 5 scenarios in the next three to two three years, um, different timescales, but in the very near future, and people talking about citizens' armies and mass mobilization and uh, talking about um, the, the war effort in ways that were quite different to, to, to earlier before. What's, what's driven that? Is it new intelligence? Is it just the kind of classic attempt by every single defense ministry to get more money and more resources? Or is there something else going on? Well, it's a bit more serious than the, the usual turf war against the Ministry of Finance. The issue is, of course, that, that the war has radicalized also Russia. Um, even com- compared to where Russia has been, which was not an entirely peaceful state, uh, but uh, you know it has expelled a large contingency of of those who oppose the war and who would oppose uh, the system. Uh, you have a very high amount of sort of large swath of people who are working on the war effort, either in security apparatus, via uh, mobilization, or, or in defense industry, was basically complicit in this and he probably will rationalize it for the life being just judging from the german history people who did dreadful things usually uh, even if they know that their rationalization is a blunt lie and a stupid lie it's a convenient lie and they will parrot it uh, as long as they live because otherwise they would have to ask themselves question why they did what they did um so we have a kind of aggressive radical russia on on our borders and that's something that that will stay there regardless how the war ends, because Russia will, even if the war ends, will still be Russia. Um, now, of course, the thing is on how quickly that will turn into a mil- direct military threat into NATO. Uh, and of course, politically, and they hate us, and we are the enemy for them. Okay, but how how fast are, are they in a position to to attack us um, or to use an opportunistic attack if the Americans are bound in Asia, and Europeans now actually start to realize what a war in the Pacific would draw on U.S. resources, and that is a bit of 
of a frightening bill because China is substantially larger and more powerful than Russia. And what do we need for that? Uh, however, of course, that is highly contingent to how the war ends and when the war ends and, and what has happened there. Uh, the Russians also, by now, in order to uh, conquer Ukraine, they burn through uh, stockpiles of um, weapon systems that the Soviet Union's needed decades to build up. Uh, and if this continues in this way, they they will have great difficulties posing even the threat to um, uh, sort of a, a near-term credible threat. Uh, depending, of course, on the political constituency and, and seriousness of the rest of NATO. Uh, and that, of course, is there's a big orange elephant in the room. Uh, and, and this is sort of the shadow of the Trump scare that uh, there are various contingency plans. And of course, now there are serious contingency plans made. What if the US pull out? What if the US aren't there? And then, of course, uh, sort of the, the benchmark for what you need to do as a European to be sovereign. And ECFR has been talking and writing about this uh, moment and the capability gaps for quite some time. Uh, they now mount up to one bill. And of course, that bill is long. And large. Okay, I think we're coming to the end of our of our time. We've probably gone slightly over, um, but it's been a very very interesting, if uh, if gloomy discuss- discussion about the the second anniversary um, of the, the war starting. There's one thing left to do on this podcast, however, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Gustav? Gosh, um, I think this is the third podcast where I had to admit that I actually am still reading Christopher Miller. Um, uh, <laughs> this is if you have two little kids uh, and an ongoing war. Uh, that's that's roughly the pace of reading. I um, I have if 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 I can if I can add a, a a slightly more creative. It's not a book recommendation. It's a game recommendation. Uh, the it's a board game. It's called Junta. Um, it, it is uh, it basically comes from the 1980s and is an outflow of the El Salvador crisis. And you're you're playing the fictional uh, La Republica de las Bananas. Uh, every uh, player is a family, a political family of the local elite. They have their board, which is the capital, where you can have your figures, which is your family members who are ministers uh, or, or generals, etc. You hold political cards, you control certain fractions of the uh, societal environment. However, the others don't know your political cards. You use them for bargaining and you bargain over the money. Uh, and uh, so, uh, you need to privatize that money into your private pocket. Uh, if something goes wrong, there's a war mode, then a rebellion is staged, and you know the, the societal and military groups you control um, uh, form your power base to fight over the capital. Usually, the civil wars are decided by betrayal, and either you abandon the president or you abandon the revolutionary. Uh, at the end of the day... <clears throat> Uh, the, the winning party can execute one of the others and then they have to form a unity government for the sake of peace, love and stability. And at the end of the day, regardless how many people you drove into exile, how, regardless how many people you have assassinated, regardless how many wars you have started, regardless how many people you have court-martialed, uh, the player with most money on his bank account wins. Um, and if you play that long enough, you can, you can put yourself into Putin's mind. It's the perfect uh, simulator. What's on your bookshelf, Jeremy? Or do you have any board games you want to recommend? Not any that it sound that interesting. Um, no, I'm I'm I guess reading a traditional book. Uh, I've you know now that I'm back in Washington, I've rejoined my history book club that I was a member of a long time ago, and we're we are this month reading uh, 
The Secret World, A History of Intelligence by Christopher Andrew, which is a history of the, the idea of intelligence, I guess, from, um, from ancient Egypt to 9-11. Uh, I'm only so far to about the 17th century, and I can tell you that intelligence definitely did not become interesting until around the late 19th century, I have a feeling. Um, so it's been a tough slog so far, and the author is mostly interested in comparing everything to Stalinist Russia. But I have a feeling that the 20th century is going to be quite interesting. So I'm looking forward to at least getting there. Great. Well, thanks a lot for, for bearing with us through, through this discussion. Hopefully it was less of a slog than Jeremy's book on, on intelligence. Uh, and if you made it this far, then hopefully you'll want to listen to future episodes of the podcast. So please do head to whatever platform you've listened to this episode on and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, be fantastic if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. And uh, when you're there, you can also see all of Gustav's writings on Ukraine and Jeremy's writings on American uh, politics of American foreign policy and, um, and our report on war and elections, looking at how to maintain uh, support for Ukraine that draws on the opinion polls I mentioned. But for now, from Jeremy Shapiro, Gustav Grasser, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast was Anand Sunda, and our editor is Maria Farrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.